Over the past five weekends, as I mentioned, we've been talking about the five eyes of indispensable people. These five eyes uh, arose out of an effort by our staff team some eight or nine years ago, I believe, to identify the qualities that we want to display as members of a team and as a team. We've taught over the last several weeks about the first of the four eyes. Those first four eyes are integral, inspiring, initiating, and intelligent. And if you haven't been able to be here in one of those weeks, as always, you can go to tlcc.org and you can watch any of the messages that we've done to this point. It's, it's common, of course, for organizations to come up with a set of values or whatever they may call them, principles, rules, qualities, that guide them as they hire, train, review, and reward the people in their organizations. I read an article in the New York Times a, a number of years ago, actually, uh, which uh, detailed how Google, at the height of their glory, came up with what they call their eight rules for bosses. They went through a process that I'll describe in part that identified the qualities that they want to have among the leaders of their organization. Um, here's what the New York Times article says in part. In early 2009, statisticians inside Googleplex, inside the Googleplex, embarked on a plan codenamed Project Oxygen. Their mission was to build better bosses. And they went through a, quite a lengthy data-driven process, and later, at, then later that year, the people analytics teams at the company produced what might be called the eight habits of highly effective Google managers. Now brace yourself, so says the New York Times, because the directives might seem so forehead-slappingly obvious, so well, duh, it's hard to believe that it took the mighty Google so long to figure them out. And then they begin mentioning some of these qualities, most of which are pretty straightforward. It sounds like almost boilerplate, like be a good coach, empower your team and don't micromanage, express interest, the third rule, express interest in team members' success and personal well-being. And then, much to my surprise, both at Google and, and the New York Times extrapolation of Google's rules, they offer the fourth behavior, which uh, is pretty straightforward and, and probably uh, is said in a way that might offend some, but blame the New York Times and Google for this one. The fourth rule is don't be a sissy. Be productive and results-oriented. Now, I think that that could be said more hospitably. It's not the way I would have written it, but nonetheless, the sentiment is interesting. And this is Google's way of saying, in essence, get tough and get the job done, which leads me to the fifth eye of indispensable people, which is that indispensable people are insistent. Indispensable people are insistent. So, just to kind of remind you what we mean when we talk about indispensable people, we've been teaching that an indispensable person knows 
that they were cast to play an irreplaceable role in God's life and his world. And that though we know that God and his world can make it without us, we believe that neither he nor his world should have to. Insistence is the linchpin of indispensability. This fifth eye, insistence, is the linchpin of indispensability. We must insist on playing the role and the roles that we were made to play. It's not enough to just know what we should do. We must insist on doing it in ways large and small. We must close the gap between our indispensable potential and actually living out our indispensability. We must be resolute in this. We must have a singleness of purpose. We must be tenacious to the point of obstinance. We must insist on being productive and results-oriented. We have to make sure that we're tough enough to actually get our indispensability out into this world. Now, we've been talking about David, the second king of Israel, and how that he is a beautiful example of, of an indispensable person in God's world. How that God looked at David and saw certain qualities in his heart that caused God to choose David and to know that David would actually do what it was that God had made him to do. Acts chapter 13 verse 22 says that God saw David, chose David to be the king of Israel and that God testified concerning him, I have found David a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. David displayed in some way, and we've discussed these in, in recent weeks, in some way he displayed these qualities of indispensability in his life. And he certainly practiced insistence. He practiced insistence in his overall role and the roles within his life that he was called to play in God's story. Now, I see three major roles that David was called to play in terms, if we were just going to talk in terms of the work that he was supposed to do. Uh, the first was that David was a warrior king. David was the guy that God used to conquer Jerusalem and to establish it as, as the capital of the people of Israel from that time forward. And David was the guy who really established the kingdom of Israel and uh, brought it to God's uh, idea of what that kingdom was supposed to be. He was a, he was a warrior king. Secondly, David was a priest worshiper. David played a unique role in terms of uh, the way he represented God's people to God and God to God's people. And David was a passionate worshiper who was insistent, not just about conquering a city, but he was insistent about worship. He was insistent about his relationship with God. He was insistent that God's presence through the Ark of the Covenant would be brought to Jerusalem and that the life of the people would be centered around it. David displayed insistence in this. But the third major role that David played was as a prophet. And a lot of times people don't think about David in this regard, but David was in fact in scripture called a prophet and he was a prophet particularly in that he had 
a God-inspired vision of the future, and he knew the role that he had to play in order to help that future come to pass. God gave David special insight, and David insisted that God's vision was secured as much as was possible in his lifetime. From a business perspective, Jack Welch, the former chairman of of General Electric, wrote that a, a great leader has to have the ability to see around corners, that every leader has to have a vision and the ability to predict the future. Well, David had this ability on a supernatural level. God told David that his dreams for the world would come to pass through one of David's sons. And David, though he didn't completely understand this, knew that one of, the mo- one of his most important responsibilities was to make sure that the successor that God had ordained to follow him would sit on his throne. That was Solomon. But in a way that I'm sure David didn't completely understand, God planned that through David's line, beginning with Solomon, that another son of David would come and sit on the throne of David forever, and that was Jesus Christ. But in order to be able to get to Jesus, the son of David, David had to make sure that the first step in that succession plan, if you please, to save the world, happened through his son, Solomon. And this is what uh, the Apostle Peter actually said uh, when he was speaking in Acts chapter 2. He said, David was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. Now, I don't, I'm, I'm really just telling you this so I can get to the point I want to make, but just so we're all on the same page here and you understand what it is that I'm seeing here, David had been told by God that his son would sit on the throne and would reign in God's kingdom forever. And there's actually a lot of play given to this in the Old Testament, in the histories of Samuel, and the histories of the kings. There's a lot said about this. And as is typical of Old Testament prophecy, there was an immediate physical fulfillment that was to happen within the lifetime or soon thereafter of the person who received revelation and prophesied about it. Solomon was the immediate physical fulfillment of the future that David knew God saw for his kingdom. But prophecy then is ultimately fulfilled in a spiritual way that has eternal meaning and that matters forever. And the son of David that God told David would sit on his throne was actually, ultimately, Jesus Christ. But to get from where David was to hundreds of years in the future to the son of David, Jesus, sitting on the throne, David knew that his son Solomon was to succeed him on the throne. He was very clear about this. First Chronicles 28.5, David said, 
Of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, Solomon, your son, is the one who will build my house and my courts. For I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever. The future of the world is wrapped up in Solomon succeeding David and creating a line that leads to Jesus. So, when David was on his deathbed and his eldest son Adonijah performed a coup and had himself anointed king over Israel, David knew that that's not what God had planned for the future of his people. And on his deathbed, David, in a way I'll describe here in just a moment, insisted that what God saw for the future actually got done. Let me take a moment and tell the story. And then I'm going to try to make some practical points about this idea of insistence. But here's a great example of, exist, of, of insistence. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Now I'm going to read a little bit and talk a little bit about a story that's told through the entire chapter of 1 Kings chapter 1. It starts like this. When King David was very old, Adonijah put himself forward and said, I will be king. Why is that a big deal? The big deal is that wasn't who God wanted to be king. And David knew that it wasn't, though he didn't know yet what Adonijah was doing. So Adonijah, the eldest son of David, his oldest son uh, was Absalom, and now this is the next oldest son. We know what happened with Absalom. We've talked about that in recent weeks. Now Adonijah knows David's about to die. He knows that he's not the chosen successor, so he incites a rebellion. He gets a couple of David's key inner team, and he, he gets them to follow him in making himself king. Uh, I know that, that, that you remember uh, Abiathar the priest, I'm kidding, I don't expect you remember Abiathar the priest. I had to study up on him a little bit this week, but this is a priest, not the priest, but a priest. Uh, Adonijah got him to follow him. Joab, the general that had, that had led David's armies, Adonijah got Joab to follow him. And he got these guys and a, and a number of other people to take him to a place called Gihon and to anoint him king over Israel. And Abiathar the priest, in fact, did anoint him king over Israel. David, again, is on his deathbed. He doesn't even, under, doesn't even know that this is happening. The guy's just trying to die peacefully from everything we can understand. That's like his next major life goal is to go to be with his fathers. Well, nonetheless, Nathan, the prophet, the man of God, heard about Adonijah anointing himself king, and Nathan went to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, wife of David, and said to her, do you think David knows what Adonijah has done? And she said, no. And he said, Bathsheba, you got to go tell David the bad news that Adonijah has just made himself king. He had a party. He invited all the king's son, but he didn't invite Solomon. And with great trepidation, 
Bathsheba goes into the king's bedchambers, uninvited, and she tells him the news that Adonijah had been made king. She said to David, 1 Kings 6, 1 Kings 1, 17, my Lord, you yourself. Now she's gonna, this poor guy's on his deathbed and she's gonna get him all riled up about promises he had made based on what he believed God had told him to do. She said to him, my Lord, you yourself swore to me, your servant by the Lord your God. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord the king, are laying here in this bed, and you don't even know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep, and has invited all the king's sons, Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army. But he has not invited your Solomon, your servant. My lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to learn from you who will, who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. And then Nathan the prophet, who had prearranged to now show up in the bedchamber following Bathsheba, walks in and says essentially the same thing to David. What is David doing? He's just laying there trying to peacefully die. And after Nathan finishes with David, David said, call in Bathsheba. The king then took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. And king David said, call in Zadok the priest. Adonijah has Abiathar the priest. I'm going to call in a better priest. Call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. By the way, Benaiah, I wish I had time to talk about him, but he's a powerful, powerful warrior, and he leads David's mighty men. So he calls in a priest, he calls in a prophet, he calls in a warrior, and he said, Take your Lord's servants with you and have Solomon, my son. Mount my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet. Anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. He is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah answered the king, amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, so declare it. And so that's, they do exactly what David tells them to do. Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the mighty warrior, take Solomon and a huge company of people. They go across town where Adonijah literally is finishing up the, the post-coronation uh, uh, celebration. And Zadok the priest takes the horn of oil and he pours it over the head of Solomon and they anoint Solomon king over Israel. It's the tale of three kings. Adonijah's just been anointed king. Now Solomon's just been anointed king and the rightful king's lying on his deathbed just trying to go in peace. Well, now the sound of Solomon's celebration is so loud, we're told. They're playing music. They're singing. They're shouting, long live King Solomon. Adonijah's party's dying down. Really, when you read it, this is exactly what's going on. He hears the noise of Solomon's party, and a messenger shows up, and Adonijah says, please tell me you have good news. And the guy says, I don't have good news. And the bad news is this, Adonijah, you just think you're king. 
because there's a crowd of people over there carrying out David's prophecy and God's will. And in fact, now Solomon is the king over Israel. And Adonijah, just, he gives up without a whimper because he knows he's out of place. And this is, a, this is a sermon for another day for which you can be thankful it's not today. He runs away and he goes to the tabernacle and he grabs a hold of the horns of the altar. In other words, he's just hoping at that point that somebody doesn't kill him while he's in that place of prayer. And so then a messenger comes to David and they tell David that Solomon has been made king, Adonijah's on the run, and again, here he is on his deathbed, but the king bowed in worship on his bed and said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has allowed my eyes to see a successor on my throne today. And then as he's about to breathe his last breath, we're told in 1 Kings 2, verse 1, when the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son, I am about to go the way of all the earth. He said, be strong, act like a man. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father, David, and his rule was firmly established. I'll take a breath. Why? You're happy I took a breath? I'll take more breaths if, if, it'll, if it'll make everybody happy. Why do I love this story? David's last act was to secure the future he knew God had promised him. It wasn't enough to know it had been promised. David had to insist that potentiality became actuality and he literally fought for this until his last breath on his deathbed. He called an executive level staff team meeting. He put together a strategic plan. He provided resources to accomplish an objective. He monitored results. He celebrated God giving the victory on his deathbed. What a picture of somebody who's a model of indispensability, who until his very last breath, he is insisting that whatever must be done to get the job done is getting done. It's often said, and don't take this out of context, please, but it's often said that no one lays on their deathbed and wish they'd spent more time at the office. Right? I get that. I understand that. Believe me, I, under, I get that. that that's, that's probably a healthy perspective on life, okay? But if someone's indispensability involves spending time at the office and they're lying on their deathbed getting ready to stand before God for that final performance review, maybe they wish they would have spent more time working on what God called them to do. David spent his last breath fighting to secure the future that God had promised him. Now, this isn't to the exclusion of his family, of course. Family is always more important. He's surrounded by his family when he dies. I'm just simply saying he's not lying on his deathbed lamenting the fact that he worked so hard to see God's dreams come true. It's not like all of a sudden all of that became unimportant to his last breath. 
See, this is the attitude of an indispensable person. It's not somebody who says, I can't wait till I can quit. I can't wait till I, at least, I'm not talking about job as much now, and I'm talking about calling, which may or not be related to our job, our vocation, our avocation, uh, our relationships, et cetera, whatever it is that God's called you to do. There never comes a time in our life, I hope, where we say, okay, I'm glad that's over. There's something in us that is fully engaged in what God's called us to do until our dying breath. And when I am laying on my deathbed at, I don't know, 150 years old, 160 years old, frankly, I wouldn't mind still being in the fray, doing something that matters. perhaps a different way of approaching life than the way a lot of people think about life, which is how can I get from where I am to the easiest life possible as quickly as possible? Well, I encourage a quality called insistence. I am gonna fight for the future God put in me until the day that I die. Now, a cautionary word before I dig into what insistence means to us here a little bit more. Insistence must be understood in the context of calling. It is not about being driven. There's a difference between being driven and being called. Drivenness is rooted in selfish ambition and an unhealthy reliance on our own efforts to drive towards and achieve our goals. Drivenness comes out of basically our sinful nature or what the King James calls our flesh. It's, it's about what we want and how we want it and we're gonna make it happen and, 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 and that can become toxic to ourselves and to the people around us. It's one thing to be driven by our own thing. But, but on the other hand, there's the idea of being called. And that's when our life is responding to what God has made our life to be about and what God has called us to. Being called has to do with knowing what we were made to do, discovering our unique area of destiny, our indispensable God-given role in this world, working on what God is working on, caring about what God cares about, and, and doing what we do in partnership with God. This is when insistence comes from not an unhealthy drivenness, but from a grace place. We work hard, but at the same time, we learn to rest in our work because our ultimate confidence is in God and not ourselves. We insist. We have that. We're going to go after it, make it happen, get it done, have results. We have that kind of an attitude, but, but we do it in the context of partnering with God to actualize the life he planned. We aren't competing with anybody, at least not in the big picture of life. Uh, that, that's, we're, not, we're not trying to outdo someone else in the big picture of life. We're simply insisting to close the gap between our potential indispensability and our lived out indispensability. And it's important to kind of keep this in mind so we're not just a bunch of driven people who are out there trying to, you know, make more money. Nothing inherently wrong with 
making money as long as it's made in the context of a bigger purpose. It's just that it's about more than that. It's about playing our God-created, indispensable role in this world and insisting that we close the gap between what God made us to do and what we're actually doing. All right, so three things then. I'll spend the rest of my time talking about how that insistent people, insistent people, first of all, have a heightened sense of urgency. They understand how high the stakes are and have the unwavering discipline to get the job done. Insistent people, and as most of you know, you can follow along if you want to in uh, life notes that are in a seat back pocket close to you. If you want to, you can write this, that insistent people have a heightened sense of urgency. They understand how high the stakes are and have the unwavering discipline to get the job done. We must feel compelled to do what God made us to do. We need to have a heightened sense of urgency. When I was called before a board of presbyters uh, many years ago now, probably 35 years ago now, as I was on a path to being an ordained pastor, um, I, I, at, some, at some point in that process, uh, at, at one stage of my ministerial licensing, I met with a board of presbyters. I guess it was the first time I'd done that. And these, they're sitting around a table and they're asking me questions. And I had walked in really having studied up on theology and doctrine and, you know, stuff about the Bible. And I was, man, I was loaded and ready to answer their questions. And I, I kind of forgot to be ready to answer the fundamental question that, in fact, they did ask me, which was, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to be a pastor? And... I hadn't prepared um, an elevator pitch or creative answer to that question, but immediately there came into my mind a passage of Scripture that had been driving me since I was in my mid-teenage years, and I had memorized it in the King James Version, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, where Paul said, for though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of for necessity." is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. And that was how I answered the question to which a presbyter later told me, after you quoted that verse, as far as I was concerned, you were in. I mean, they all had to vote, you know, to pass me to the next level. But that's what was truly in me. It wasn't a prepared pat answer, and I'm all for prepared answers. I would prefer them. But this is what is in me. Why do I want to preach? Necessity is laid upon me. In fact, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. The reason I say that is because each one of us need to have a woe is unto me if I don't fill in the blank driving purpose in our lives or sense of calling. All of us, in order to live a life that's meaningful, need to be able to understand what is it God made me to do, that if I don't do it, woe is unto me. Now that looks different for every one of us. 
But we have to figure it out. For some of us, it's our vocation. Our vocation is so clearly connected to higher purposes. We feel a woe is unto me around our vocation. For others of us, vocation is, is uh, it, it, it's, it's tent making. The apostle Paul would, had a tent making business so that he could make enough money to do what he was really called to do. So maybe vocation is that for you. But you still need to see your vocation in that bigger, what is this really about? We've got to all be able to look at our lives and ask the question, what is it? that I'm supposed to do where I would say necessity is laid upon me. If I don't do this, it's going to kill me. And when we have that kind of sense in our lives, that's when we have to be reminded how high the stakes are. Some of us are not as motivated as we should be about whatever it is we're doing in this world because we don't have a sense of woe is me and attached to that a sense of how high the stakes are. We all need to be involved in some cause so much greater than ourselves that we understand the stakes are incredibly high and that needs to create a sense of urgency in our lives. It's what gives us a reason to get up in the morning. Now we find that in our children and we find that in our relationships, right? And some, for some, perhaps that's even your primary calling. And if that's the case, praise God. I want you to understand that I'm not saying to you what that thing should be. I'm saying you have to figure it out. And then you're reminding yourselves how high the stakes are so that you're not just, you know, my word, what would it be like to be engaged in something so incredibly important that, that you wouldn't mind interacting around it on your deathbed. <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds a little odd. I don't think I've ever said it exactly that way before, but, but I have to tell you that as far as I'm concerned, the gospel is so important. What I feel called to do, which is no more important than what you're called to do, by the way. Right? What I feel called to do is so important that I don't wanna like not care about it anymore. I don't wanna get to a point in my life where I say that isn't important. Now I may get to a point in my life where it manifests itself in a different way. I doubt that you're gonna want a pastor who's 149 years old, for instance. But when you have a woe, you get my point, right? When you have a woe is me, you have to figure that out. And if you wanna figure it out, God will show it to you. So, and then we have to practice unwavering discipline to see that thing happen. See, when we get a sense of what, of what our, our woe is me is, then we make sure that we're getting up every day and we're working towards seeing that happen. There's a, a, a wonderful and in some ways terrible book uh, in terms of its message that was written by the leadership guru Jim's, Jim Collins called uh, 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 How the Mighty Fall. It's about once great corporations that, uh, that at some point uh, fell apart and he's trying to identify how the mighty fall. And one of them he said was, is that people have an undisciplined approach to their effort. That, well, I think I've got, uh, uh, he said problems stem from the undisciplined pursuit of more. 
Discontinuous leaps into arenas for which you have no burning passion is undisciplined. Taking action inconsistent with your core values is undisciplined. Investing heavily where you cannot attain distinctive capability is undisciplined. Launching headlong into activities that do not fit uh, with who you are is undisciplined. To compromise your values or lose sight of your core purpose in pursuit of growth and expansion is undisciplined. We need an unwavering discipline towards seeing the woe is me happen in our lives. It's not just activity. It's not just busyness. It's not getting up chasing this and that and expending all of our energy on a hundred different things. Somehow or another, we keep coming back to that basic thing that, that we know that God has said to us that if we don't act on it, it's not going to be the way God wanted it to be. Years ago, I heard uh, Ken Blanchard the author of uh, the best-selling business book in history, The One Minute Manager, uh, I heard Ken say that when One Minute Manager was first released, it really didn't do that well. But that he and his, his co-writer, Spencer Johnson, um, would get up every day and they would do something every day towards moving the message of that book forward. I've thought about that many, many times over the years. Every day they would get up and they, would do, they felt that message was so important, had so much potential, it impacted so many lives. Every day they got up and spent time working on that. And see, when we have that kind of thing in our lives, we don't wake up sometime at the end of the week and say, wait a minute, I didn't do anything towards moving the main thing forward in my life. I did all kinds of things. I was busy. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. I'm ready for a vacation, but I didn't move the woe is me forward in my life this week. So we have an unwavering discipline. We have a heightened sense of urgency, and we, we get up every day to do the thing that we've been called to do in our lives. Secondly, insistent people rise to the challenge of a mission-driven and highly sacrificial work and ministry culture. Living out our indispensability will probably require sacrifice. Now these are the staff team values at TLCC, so some of them are written with that in mind. The five eyes is a document that we've been, we've been thinking about, talking about uh, around here, again, for eight or nine years. So, so this is the way it's said to us. You have to apply this now to your own life, but here's the point. Living out our indispensability will probably require sacrifice. This is part, by the way, of the reality of Christianity. And we might as well know this and embrace this, that whatever our woe is me is, if it's a God-given woe is me, it is going to be connected in some way to what God's doing in the world. Again, that can manifest itself in thousands and thousands of different ways, different vocations, different vo avocations, uh, 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 different ways of volunteering, different ministries, different causes to be involved in. This can manifest itself in all kinds of ways. But uh, we, we should know if it's connected to what God's up to in the world, it's probably going to require some level of sacrifice. This is what Jesus said. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. God give us each a cause big enough to lose our lives for in a way where we really save our lives. Uh, I don't know why it is, you know, 
I don't know why it is that, 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 that sometimes people have a view of, of Christianity as, 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 as soft. It, it drives me nuts. And if you're around me very long, you, you know that, 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 that I'll find a variety of ways to say, let's not live a wimpy version of Christianity. I don't know why it is. It's just, you know, these poor little nice losers you know, sitting over in the corner, hoping they can just kind of get to heaven someday, and they just, they're so nice, and, and I'm all for being nice, by the way, sometimes. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I just can't stand, that's not, the, the, the New Testament Christianity is a bold, courageous, strong, go after it, work hard, get it done, produce something picture of what life's supposed to be. Here, here's the apostle Paul. Somebody was criticizing him, uh, and, 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 and he said about them, he said, are they servants of Christ? Check this out, 2 Corinthians 11. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, if you think all that's tough, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. I mean, what kind of picture do you get of an insistent person from what Paul just said there? You get this idea that somebody who has something important to do, they're willing to sacrifice and live dangerously, if you please, to see the thing come to pass. Years ago, I heard uh, a highly influential ministry leader, somebody who led a huge uh, Christian nonprofit, uh, which actually was voted uh, uh, one of the top uh, Christian organizations to work for in the world. They took care of their people, which you, if you're a Christian leader, obviously you are compelled to do. You don't have a choice about that. You want to do that. They took care of their people. But at the same time, when people were coming to work for them, this was part of the spiel he would give them. And they had hundreds of employees. He said, our culture is high challenge, it's fast changing, it's results oriented, and it's sacrificial to the core. By that I mean we don't offer potential staff members a tidy career opportunity. We offer them a mission to lay their lives down for. Sacrifice around our staff is normal. So if you're job hunting and you're looking for a low challenge, status quo, emotionally coddling, rarely sacrificing culture, just walk away. You'll never be happy here. And if you really like it slow and predictable and you're looking for employment, a friend of mine owns a turtle farm and he's hiring. All you gotta do is lay in a lawn chair and watch. If that sounds good to you, go there. Don't come here. Here's the third thing. That intense, that, what am I talking about? Insistent, insistent people do and then I'm gonna close and we're gonna, we're gonna have baptisms. Insistent people are intensely motivated and they have elevated expectations for their own performance. They look forward to having their performance reviewed by others. When you're motivated, 
When you care deeply about what you're doing, you're gonna be insistent on a job well done regardless whether anyone is watching, whether anyone notices you, or whether or not there's any reward in it for you. But you would rather uh, someone be watching at least in order to review you. You love feedback. You love, if necessary, being corrected and redirected if necessary. You love the potential of being rewarded as well. By the way, when Jesus called people to give up their life, he told them that somehow or another when they did that, they were going to get more life. He always would call people to sacrifice with some greater reward than what they were giving up in mind. We were created to want to be rewarded. This is human, and it's fine if kept within certain boundaries. God made us for this, but you know, a lot of people, a lot of people are afraid, and I guess understandably so, and depending on the environment that you work on, you know, there might be a justification for this, but, but are afraid of being reviewed, afraid of sitting down every quarter or every year and having to give an account for whether or not they did their job the way they're supposed to and kept the goals that were set and all this kind of thing. But I, I, we try to create an environment here uh, in, in, in our staff culture, which is imperfect, but, but pretty healthy, uh, we try to create an environment where people are actually excited about the, the, the possibility that they're gonna sit down with a supervisor and talk about their job and their life and their dreams and the ministry and all this kind of thing and enjoy being held accountable for what it is they're called to do and, and, and helped to better fulfill those things. I think that should be the attitude that we have, that all of us are so, we care so much about what we're doing that we love the idea of being reviewed. This is true in the business environment, but that's not really how I wanna close this talk because I think it's especially true in an eternal environment. The environment in which we ultimately live our lives. The Bible says that we are all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And it's one thing to have a, 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 some kind of attitude, whether positive or negative, about an eternal performance, um, pardon me, an annual performance review. It's another thing to live in a way where you have an optimistic attitude about the eternal performance review. That you have actually an excitement about the idea of standing before God and giving an account for what you did with your life. Now I understand, I mean, just think about that for a moment. What would it be like for each of us to be living our life in such a way that we are actually looking forward to giving an account, to having the potential of hearing the words of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant, come and share in your master's happiness. What would it be like to stand before God and to know that we actually were the people that he created us to be? that we reached our God-given potential, that we made the contribution in this world that God created us to make.